0: It's great to see so many people here tonight, to see uh, five very interesting speakers talking about the theme of global migration and urban renewal. It doesn't really need much um, demonstration about the fact that over the last 20 years, particularly, huge waves of migration across different cities have transformed the urban landscape in London as in many other cities around the world. So we're very lucky tonight to have five eminent speakers of different kinds reflecting upon this issue. For me, one of the interesting themes to pick up will be the relationship between debates in America, the US, and debates in Europe, and particularly the UK. I think we'll see interesting, interestingly different perspectives from our different speakers. Also, I think very interesting that we will have some um, speakers, Rob Berkeley from the Runnymede Trust, and Tim Finch from the IPPR, who will be reflecting upon these issues from a policy perspective. Because clearly, in in, in recent months, we've been uh, um, watching the debate about David Goodhart's book about immigration and the British Dream, which has opened up very interesting policy issues about uh, the implications of immigration in British cities. And I'm sure that will be a very interesting aspect of today's discussion. So the plan is for Philip Kasnitz and Michael Keith to speak for about 20 minutes and then Rob Berkeley, Tim Finch and Sharon Zukin will each speak for a few minutes to discuss and raise issues coming out of their talks. I will give Philip and Mike the chance to respond and hopefully towards the end there will be a chance for a question and answer session. But clearly we have an hour and a half so time is of the essence. So let me move straight on to introduce our two main speakers, Philip Kasnitz, Professor of Sociology, City University in New York, one of the leading American scholars who has developed the sociology of immigration in the US into a field which competes with the dominant paradigms of economists, an extensive work on immigration to the US and particularly most recently on the children of immigrants and how they are um, uh, um, finding their way inside American society. Then, Michael Keith uh, is director of the Centre for Migration, Policy and Social Change at the University of Oxford, where he also holds a chair in the School of Anthropology, very well known for his work around migration, urbanism, urban culture, um, and two, I think, very interesting and contrasting uh, presentations. Okay, so let me give the floor immediately to Philip.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, I want to particularly thank um, Professor Savage and Professor Susie Hall for inviting me here. It's really great to be here. Um, I guess what uh, the topic we're dealing with tonight broadly focuses on, well, the fact that in so much of what we used to be presumptuous enough to call the developed world, uh, we're facing a challenge of societal membership. I started out when I wrote this to call it a crisis of societal membership. And then I realized that everything is always a crisis in a certain kind of discourse. So decided to try to get beyond that. But certainly in the face of enormous international migration, um, in the face of what Steve Vertovec has called super-diversity, something that's also appeared now in the work of uh, Maurice Cruel and Suzanne Wessendorf and a lot of others, Um, we're really facing new sorts of challenges. And uh, obviously, in the case of both New York and London, the events of 9-11 and the terrorist bombings here uh, have focused uh, a lot of attention on this question. And we see politicians issuing reassessments of multiculturalism, in many cases, they're talking about a failure of multiculturalism and questioning uh, how a plural society is supposed to operate. I guess all of these... Issues of societal membership really raise the question, I hardly have to tell this audience this, Uh, but new politics around the issue of what belonging means in society. Who belongs here, but more broadly, what belonging means? Who asserts moral ownership of urban space? A topic Sharon Zukin and I have been working on, but also metaphoric space in terms of a place in the society. Um, A lot of this overheated rhetoric stands in a marked contrast to the often underappreciated values of vernacular cosmopolitanism, or I get what uh, Professor Hall has called uh, street corner cosmopolitanism, or uh, sh- uh, corner shop cosmopolitanism is the word I learned today. Um, we see in the daily life of these super diverse cities, places <coughs> with incredible differences like New York and London, uh, and when which, well, most people are not killing each other most of the time. Now. I admit that's a pretty low standard for civil existence, (laughs) but it's a standard and it's one that frankly the way it functions, given the way much of the world functions, is at times kind of a small miracle and one that we should probably appreciate. Now in doing, uh, looking at this and, and seeing how broad this whole question of, you know, societal membership is and how many places it's being discussed. Uh, it's easy to see a lot of parallels, and it's easy to see convergences between other societies. At the same time, I think it's important um, well to very badly paraphrase Tolstoy. Um, if all multi-ethnic societies have suddenly become unhappy, they're all really unhappy in their own ways. <laughs> and they're all unhappy in ways that reflect the ways previous ethnic issues of diversity or other kinds of diversity the way previous social accommodations about who belongs and who doesn't belong in a society were resolved. Um, it's, um, now, in, in after we said that, let me say that I'll concentrate the rest of my remarks on the United States, the society I know best, and on New York City, uh, the city that I know best. But I'm hoping that uh, after this we can then open up for comparison and try to see what we can learn from each other. Now, in the US, um, the immigrant story that we like to tell ourselves, the salutary myths about immigration, tend to be quite different from the myths we tell ourselves about race. And I think that that's probably a contrast to Western Europe. Um, We have the idea of ourselves as a nation of immigrants And there's a story about this relatively successful incorporation of European immigrants, particularly those who arrived in American cities from the 1880s to the 1920s. And like all self-congratulatory myths, this has to be greeted with a great deal of skepticism. And obviously, historians have subjected this to a great deal of skepticism. But it's also more true than not. You know, by and large, an awful lot of people were incorporated into American society. And it's something that we look at rather successfully. And as I'll speak in a moment, it contrasts very much to the way we understand our far less happy experience around the issue of race. And the contrast is there in the way we conceive of people's membership, even when they're, in fact, the same people, okay. um, Now, the dominant version of this myth, I should note, is not one of total assimilation, although sometimes it's caricatured that way by the critics. Um, at least it hasn't been since the 1960s um, there's in the u.s. the sort of way in which we celebrate ethnic difference is one in which we talk a lot about substantial room being allowed for the maintenance of difference and even the celebration of difference provided that certain basic principles are adhered to um... you know the english language uh basically playing by the rules of constitutional democracy and so forth. And in some ways, at least the way in which Americans tend to understand this, and I think this is more true than not, is that the U.S. has been relatively successful in handling ethnic differences that result from immigration in part because our standards are pretty low in terms of what a common culture would be. We don't really care which football team people root for or even which football team they're a member of, which I understand has recently become a controversy here. Um, We, uh, you know, and and even in New York, in the post 9-11 period, it's, while certainly there have been renewed ethnic conflicts of all sorts, it's really hard to imagine uh, a French style headscarf controversy, for example. Ethnic shopping streets are almost universally seen as a good thing to take a topic that a lot of urbanists are concerned with. Um, they're celebrated. The mayor will, you decide to open one, the mayor will show up and give you a proclamation. You know, This is sort of just part of the vocabulary. I understand Ken Livingston was trying to establish a Chinatown in London. Is that, do I have that right? Um, probably put up a big gate. You know, which is what they do in every Chinatown in the world. Now, there are places in the world where that's actually controversial, you know, and where people say, well, this is kind of celebrating balkanization and actual planners should take it upon themselves to make sure that things are more distributed. Uh, it, that's just almost unimaginable in New York and most older American cities. Um, and I would say here, the heightened level of diversity does seem to help. Um, the types of contact that happen in the super diverse city, where you have a great many groups and a great many bases for diversity, and where the same people may be members of various different kinds of diverse communities, tends to work differently than having one or two or three large master statuses, you know, in which you really get uh, firmer, uh, stronger cleavages. Um, now I know what you're going to ask: Isn't there a tremendous increase anti-immigrant sentiment in the United States? And to some extent there is, and there certainly has been in recent years. I think, however, this points to the importance of what people who do US Immigration Scholarship have called the new destinations. When we look at the increasingly hostile climate that immigrants face, it is one of the issues in which Americans who don't think, we think of ourselves as a very national culture, you know, but um, it's one of the areas where regionalism still continues to be quite important. And in places like Alabama and and, uh, Arizona, which have been the centers of anti-immigrant legislation, are one of the important things to remember about them is that they are places where immigration is a very new phenomenon, okay? And where um, there hasn't been a long history of immigrant incorporation and which local civil society doesn't see itself in those terms. Um, This contrasts a lot with those cities and I'm thinking particularly New York, but also Chicago, San Francisco, that have been immigrant receiving entry points for a very long time. And the reason I raise those three cities is they were three of the top ten immigrant receiving places uh, in 2010. They were also three of the top ten immigrant receiving places in 1970, and they were uh, um, in the top ten of immigrant receiving cities in the United States in 1880. You know, so there's been a continuous uh, um, presence of migrants and what I think that leads to is institutions but also to some extent ideologies of incorporation um, institutions like my own city, University of New York, which makes a big deal about the great success of its immigrant students and sees the incorporation of immigrants as very much part of its mission, but also the ways the public school system deals with it. The public school system at the moment will send home languages, uh, send home notes to, uh, to parents in 140 languages, I just looked at their website, um, including Yiddish and Celtic. What the hell that's about, I have no idea. But. <laughs> Sometimes ethnic symbolism, like, vaguely goes way beyond any practical application. But that's okay. Um, We have expectations. We have expectations of ethnic succession, and expectations that ethnic succession doesn't lead to civil wars. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, in the Democratic primary, uh, a Mexican displaced a Puerto Rican city council person, you know, very bitter, lots of people in the neighborhood are upset, no one thinks a revolution is going to break out. This is a kind of a, a basic, and while people may not like the specifics, the notion that ethnic succession is a legitimate part of the way city government is supposed to function is broadly accepted. Okay. Now, of course, there are people who get upset about ethnic distinctiveness, including things like distinctive dress. Uh, given our wonderful American ignorance of the rest of the world, you probably noticed that in an effort to beat up Muslims, we often attack Sikhs. Um, um, that rising nativism, um, which has become, I think, very important on the far right in the United States, uh, very much is bounded up with anti-urbanism, and to some degree, perhaps, a little bit anti-Semitism. Um, It has to do with the idea that real Americans are white and rural and small-town Americans. And you'll notice in some ways a lot of the more loony of the attacks on Barack Obama have focused on his alleged foreignness even more than his alleged blackness, or not so alleged blackness. Um. (laughs) However, I want to emphasize that while this is worrisome and while it's real and while this part of the far right thanks to the gerrymandering of the House of Representatives, exerts an extraordinary amount of power in the United States, it is still a minority position. right? In fact, it may have been what got Barack Obama re-elected. Obama took 70% of the Latino vote. He took almost 70% of the Asian vote. He took 70% of the Jewish vote. Pretty much anybody who identified themselves as different from that mainstream voted for Bob Obama. And given the fact that he's been a pretty bad president on immigration issues, that deportations are higher now than they've ever been. You know, we don't have good polling data on Muslims. You know, the kind of repression that Muslims have faced in the United States in many ways has been shameful and yet I am fairly sure he got a large majority of the votes of Muslims if we had good polling data. That has a lot to do with the fact that he legitimizes the notion that difference is okay. Now, um, this new nativism even sometimes focuses on a kind of sense that, well, these immigrants are not necessarily as good as the old immigrants. They are perhaps being downwardly assimilated. Ironically, that they're becoming too much like, well, us, or perhaps like parts of our society we don't like, that they're being assimilated into some sort of underclass. Okay, which really means that uh, the new immigrants are acting too much like African-Americans or possibly too much like long-term Mexican-Americans. Um, and one of the ways in which this has focused, which I'll get back to in a moment, has been in the tremendous emphasis on the question of legality. You know, ah, but these are illegal immigrants. And that label has taken on an almost racial tinge in American politics recently. Um, now. By and large, however, I would emphasize, again, that this has been a minority trend and that in the large cities, there's an almost banal and perhaps in its own way also dangerous celebration of ethnic diversity. Um, The uh, local public radio show in New York recently had a sort of debate, a mock contest over which was the most diverse city in the world, New York, London, uh, Toronto, and... And I think Sydney was the fourth, but that, they, they were thrown in just to get beat up. They were not; they were not even contenders. (Laughter) um. But they got alleged experts to get up and brag about the fact that, well, New York's more diverse because of this way of measuring it. London's more diverse because of that way of measuring it. And there is, what's interesting here is that an awful lot of our elite, uh, including our last two mayors, uh, one of whom was a real Republican, one of whom is sort of a Republican, um, (laughs) have really stood up for pro-immigrant policies, which actually put them quite at odds with their national party and was was politically somewhat costly in terms of their national reputations, Um, which has a kind of distinctly, and I think there is a kind of a neoliberal version of this uh, pro-immigrant idea. Now I should mention that it's not always one that's very in keeping with the actual experience of most immigrants. I was uh, got invited to a series of meetings a f- couple of years ago where uh, Bloomberg was having some big powwow with Boris Johnson. And as part of the side meeting to that, they brought along some developers and some large major city officials and some finance people, real masters of the universe type. And as the uh, chair of the sociology department of the city university, I got the call to go give a little like five minute like talk about demography, you know, in the two cities. And then I was allowed to sort of sit in the back of the room and watch if I was very quiet. And it was quite amazing. Everybody was pro immigrant. Gaga pro immigrant. We get the best. Why shouldn't we get the best young people from every country on the planet? Blah, 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 blah. And when you scratched it a little bit, it turned out that they're pro, and they were arguing over who was more pro immigrant. And the New York people were saying, oh, the London people are so much better. And what they were really meaning was that it was easy for international finance executives and high tech engineers to get in to London than it was to New York, and that kind of thing. There was very little real appreciation of you know, the actual lived experience that most immigrants have. Nevertheless, you know there is kind of a celebration of the pro business side and entrepreneurialism among immigrants which really feeds into the whole question of renewal um, some you know about forty six percent of the business owners in New York City today are uh, immigrants that's not a huge surprise because that's just about what the percentage of the labor force is. But in terms of places where people actually have encounters with people different from themselves, it's actually quite high, Um, a good deal higher. It's almost 80% of the restaurant owners and it's about two-thirds of the grocery store owners. So if you think about it in terms of where people first encounter people different from themselves and the idea that that is like directly has to do with small business and to the extent that um, folks like our two recent Republican mayors see business ownership as particularly morally virtuous, you can see why the immigrant popularity sort of <laughs> works. Um, also, however, the celebration of immigrants among urban elites in the United States has a subtle upbraiding effect for African Americans. It's basically you know, you're different too. Those folks are different. Those po- folks who suffer, suffer discrimination, how come you can't be more like, you, you get the idea. okay? And I think that that very much works into all of this. And indeed, where the rubber meets the road on this is a topic that I've been writing about a good deal for the last few years, which is that of the second generation, the children of immigrants. And again, much of the debate around the second generation comes down to will they be virtuous, hardworking, you know, uh, um, um, creative uh, migrants like their parents Or will they, for whatever reason, uh, the right says it's because they don't want to assimilate, the left says it's because American society won't let them, but for whatever reason, will they end up having a kind of reactive ethnicity that will look like that of the native minority groups? And this leads to all kinds of confusions of style and substance. For a while, people were really worried that too many of the children of Latino immigrants were taking up hip-hop and wearing their hats on backwards. I don't, I'm not kidding. The problem there, of course, was that an awful lot of white kids are taking up hip-hop and are wearing their hats on backwards, so so it goes. The race story, as we know, is a lot less of a happy one. And, in fact, I think uh, many of the uh, foundations, you could almost see a palpable sense of relief when the issue in the 1990s sort of became, let's look at immigrant incorporation rather than the issue of race. Uh, and almost an abandoning of the discussion of race. And it's a relief that comes from the fact that while certainly the issue of immigration and what that means in terms of social inclusion is complicated and difficult, it's an issue that most Americans think, well, we kind of know how to do that. You know? Because the myth is we did it in the past. You know? And it's rather different from the issue of race, which we have obviously a much sadder history about. You know, with this, we see an almost wholesale replacement, even on the left, and arguably especially on the left, of the idea of diversity. You know, well Excuse me, I said this wrong. Justice is being replaced by diversity. You know The celebration of diversity as opposed to justice. So we talk a lot in New York about our elite high schools, our public high schools, where many people of extremely poor backgrounds, where immigrant parents are achieving in, in, in great success. Stuyvesant High School, which is harder to get into than Harvard, and is a tremendous uh, 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 record in terms of preparing students for all kinds of great achievement, is now overwhelming majority Asian. You know, students who are native-born seem not almost to be absent from all of the elite high schools. Uh, but of course, the part of that that's not talked about when they will go out and say, "Well, our best high schools and our best city university has all these hundreds of different national origins and all these humble beginnings." And all this is completely true. I mean, in some ways, miraculous. These places have done tremendous jobs with people who often come from very different societies and have had great struggles. Okay, but the virtual disappearance. Two minutes. Two minutes, the virtual disappearance of African-Americans from these places has been almost completely you know, ignored. Uh, similarly, racial segregation has almost completely dropped off the policy agenda in the United States, uh, which is quite remarkable given how big an issue it was for how long. And the question of diversity, and again, segregation, for those of you who are kind of in the demography business, uh, it's a tricky thing to, to deal with because if you measure how many white Americans now live in communities in which a substantial number of the population are not white Americans, we're much more diverse than we ever were. You know? On the other hand, if you measure how many African Americans live in communities that are virtually entirely African American, you know, that number has changed almost not at all. Now, in the now minute and a half I have left, let me turn to the issue that I think is going to be the great challenge we have at the moment. We currently have approximately 11 million um, um, unauthorized immigrants in the United States. Not non-citizens, that number is much higher. About 11 million people who are labeled illegal immigrants. You know. Political unpersons. This is a, a category of people who really we haven't had since the end of Jim Crow this large group of people who are essentially outside of the polity, okay? I don't have time to explain why, but the creation of that group of people is virtually entirely the result of of bad social policy, okay? Many of these folks are members of American society in every meaningful way, economically, socially, culturally, but not politically. Okay. I think this very much ill serves democracy. And it parallels the sort of de-citizening, if there is such a word, the loss of citizenship rights by a substantial amount of the native minority population thanks to mass incarceration, the other great factor that's affected American life in the last twenty years. As a result in, we are increasingly seeing citizenship in the most narrow legal sense become a very important category in the United States at the time when we have an African-American president we still have this exclusion of this very large group of people based on literal citizenship rights okay and if you talk about rights to the city or rights to virtually anything else you know this seems to be just an important starting point and I would just mention that In the U.S., where we have a heritage of civil rights and the protection of civil rights, we find ourselves particularly ill-equipped to deal with the question of the rights of non-citizens who, by their definition, don't have civil rights. It's because we don't talk about human rights. And I suspect that's the great civil rights struggle or the great equality struggle that we're going to be facing for the next five or ten years. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Now we'll move straight on to Mike Keith.
2: Thanks to the organisers, um, to LSE Cities, and thanks to you for for coming. Um, I want to try and persuade you uh, in the 20 minutes that I have that uh, migration and urbanism are mutually constitutive. You can't just add one to the other. And I want to do this by suggesting that we need... Uh, a new language really to try to make sense of the the city as a commons, the the city of the future as being, if you like, a, a form of commons on the one hand and what that means is that the social forms of migrant urbanism that emerge and shape that city have to be conceptualized in terms of their emergence, their flux, their continual propensity for change. And so I'm going to try and do this in two parts if you'll bear with me. The first part I'm going to try to read and then speak more off the page, but to read, to start, the contemporary city is a territory of possibility as well as a space of exclusion and a place of sequestration. It proffers the propensities of freedom and the worries of the dystopian. We know that in this vein, the city both attracts and exploits migrants. Migrants in turn exploit the city and reshape it in an image all their own. But equally, the mutations of the urban fabric assume situational logics, the simultaneous decline and renewal generating forms of path dependency and lock in mm. that create in turn new relationalities that structure further metropolitan futures. It is this spirit of ambivalence and emergence that replicates the excitement and the horrors of the modern, invoked in the landmark All That Is Solid Melts Into Air, written by the great urbanist Marshall Berman, who died far too early last month and to whose memory this paper is in a very small way dedicated. For Berman, reflecting on his own work, the story of Faust was the key metaphor of modernity, perfectly aware as he was that for Marlowe and for Goethe the story had two very different endings. The city registers the consequences of migration through the pluralities of cartography and chronology. It's a long-standing truism of migration studies that (coughs) The the migration Studies research that whilst the economic benefits of migration are realised at the geographical scale of the labour market, the incidental costs are realised at much smaller geographical scales, particularly in small neighbourhoods subject to rapid social change. The life cycle welcomes migrants most often as young adults, free from the costs of birth, child rearing and schooling that are normally borne by societies from which migrants move. So, both the scale jumping between neighborhood and city and the time shifting across the life cycle shape the calculus of migration externalities, both positive and negative. And it is this problem of externalities through which much of the discussion of city growth flows. Harvard economist Ed Glazer has claimed that cities unlock the dynamics of social and economic change through the beneficial positive externalities of urbanism's density of people and institutions. From a very different political, disciplinary, theoretical trajectory, Former Multitudes editor Yann Moulier-Bouton has argued similarly that the positive externalities and spillovers of the networks of the the city drive economic change, what he calls the cognitive capitalism of the 21st century. A similarly optimistic notion of the propensity of the city echoes through Hart and Negri's invocation of the multitude and the Commonwealth. But how do we conceptualize these concentration effects of urban, urban dispensation? Hart and Negri argue that the political project of instituting the commons cuts directly across the false alternatives, that term, the false alternatives of private and public capitalism and socialism. But what does, it mean, what does it mean to take seriously their notion that the city exemplifies a form of commons? The comparison of arguments found in Glaser and Bouton is significant. Where they are significant is through, where they are similar, sorry, it's through an interest in the messy combinatory power the city generates in innovation and change. Where they are different is in how they see the city capturing both the benefits and the costs of this change. Glazer's neoclassical economics privileging clear and singular property rights, the commons enclosed, the autonomists, Hart, Negri, Bouton, Benkler, and so on, arguing that the forms of information capitalism of the present-day metropolis overflow the boundaries of the economic separations of internal and external. Arguments often articulated in scholars of the cities. That we see more in the urbanists of the global south, such as Malik Simone and Roy Rabisandharam. But the differences between these two positions are perhaps not quite as absolute as we might think. The neoclassical, economist, sorry, ne, sorry, the neoclassical economics take is much more flexible about property rights than caricature expressed in the everyday realities that we see in the planning of cities in North America and Europe. Securitization of land, development of a municipal tax base, actuarial estimates of future revenues, they all assume a shared city of the future that rests in some way on an income of the present and assumes a socialization of the benefits of economic change. And you can see that if you like, if you look at Boston's Big Dig or London's Crossrail, how we think about the future city and its social benefits in the costs of its financing in the present day. And even Benkler, actually the radical legal theorist, suggests that more generally one can say that the commons... And property exists more on a spectrum of institutional arrangements than as polar opposites. So, when the city is viewed as a commons, its successes and failures lie in the facility to balance public and private interests, maximize the positive externalities of economies of scale, scope, and skill that come from the creativity of the metropolis, and minimize the negative externalities of pollution, rent seeking, excessive regulation. The arrival of new people in the city international migrants in 21st century London as much as rural migrants in the arrival cities of the global south highlights the difficulties of getting the balance right. And I want to try and suggest that there are two challenges that flow from this, this take. One conceptual, one practical. Conceptually where the autonomists and the neoclassical economists differ in is how we think about the most efficient way to handle externalities. To simplify greatly in early 20th century economic orthodoxy Pigou's argument uh, dominated in suggesting that negative externalities needed to be socialized. In the late 20th century, the growing influence of the law and economics school that followed Ronald Coase and suggested that it was possible to combine clear property rights and strong pricing mechanisms to allocate the cost of externalities through markets if you know, it structured the way in which late 20th century urban change came about. The polluter pays, the developer is responsible for negative externalities and captures the value. Education becomes a private good rather than a public good. In parentheses, there's a sort of alternative histories of neoliberalism that are increasingly coming to press at the moment, which are important, including people like William Davis, Phil Marofsky and others. The essential point is that Coase economised lo- law in the law and economics movement. He shifted juridical debate on the good life enforced by a court to a rational framing of subjects that would maximise utility. The point is to recognise the historical specificity of this moment. Just as law and economics structured the city in a particular fashion, It is possible to rethink how law generates subjects and combines with cultural forms. That is why some of the most powerful thinking of the new writing around the commons comes from those who turn law and the juridical, the jurisprudential back on economics, assert the impossibility of certain articulations of property rights and the possibility of alternative ways of thinking. Practically, there are forms of existing technocratic knowledge that can be brought to bear to maximise public good we're far less confident about the ways in which they bring together, we should bring together these forms of expertise. In the UK, planners can maximise the elements of social housing and public space through the operation of Section 106 mitigation processes in the granting of development control. City managers can model different experiments in value capture that secure public return on private capital through stakeholding investment. Architects can generate footprint cash value through enhancing density and accruing incremental value to invest in public goods. All of these things happen right now in various parts of London. We give examples of them. They don't always happen particularly effectively. The challenge is how we bring them together, combine them in ways that work with an ethical register with which we might be more comfortable. So what does this mean? Very quickly, if I had more time, I'd I'd develop this more. What I try to suggest in a slightly longer version of this is that this makes us think slightly differently about combination, about commensuration, and about comparison. And what I'm trying to suggest, I guess, is that there are forms of combination that arise in the new city between material cultures and legal and political status and subject making, which might make us think slightly differently about migration how we combine scale in terms of the the flips between the neighbourhood level and the city, skills in technocratic ways we actually come to manage the city, but also scope in terms of how we combine ethical registers with cultural realities. These forms of new combination make us think about the assembling of the material and the cultural in new ways. The acceleration of processes of change might be considered, again, almost in Marshall Berman's terms, if all that is solid melts. Then both the ossification dissolving and reformation of social form might have become more speedy the challenge of social analysis then is to capture that which is changing in a research process whose logistics from research design through to final publication may exceed the half-life of the phenomena examined i think far too often on some on some occasions the research is put by the time the research is published the city changes ahead of us Mm -hmm. migration is a classical (laughs) example of this but well, we know that the flux of migration frequently exceeds the pace of academic imagination, let alone the propensity for the media to comprehend what's going on on the ground. In terms of commensuration, in determining the future of the city, different forms of expertise, influence and design are brought to bear on the fabric of the city. This contest demands a form of commensuration as we consider in whose image, other than that of capital, the city might be reshaped. How do we balance the outcome of the rationalisations of an economist of housing supply, such as Kate Barker, the political demands of a Boris or an architectural lobby, perhaps led by even a Ricky Burdett as part of this process of commensuration of expertise? As are the interventions of the knowable moral certainty of Alinsky's community organisers or the unknowable interventions of the assemblages of the multitude? At different times and different places, particular forms of expertise have purchased, gained traction in shaping built form and corralling popular sentiment. This makes us think, I think, a little bit about how we manage the the processes of justification that that are going on at any one stage. It actually brings us on to think a little bit differently, I guess, about the comparisons between America and and the UK, or for that matter, a comparative urbanism, about which there is a kind of profound literature that's evolved in, in recent years. In the context of uh, migration and and London's urban change, what I want to try and suggest is that there there are a few exemplary cases of what I've called um, combinations and mutations. The argument I want to make is that when we think of the cultural forms tied into migration and the material forms of the city and the way they combine and recombine, they are always in the move, but they are in the move that demands a historical sensibility alongside a sociological imaginary. I think what that means is just to give. A, I could spend time looking historically at the way, if we look at the, the Windrush generation and migration, and the way. It, change London from the Bangladeshi squatter movements to the demands for rights under political systems of social housing allocation. That combination of legal status and popular mobilization and geographical residential settlement create different and rapidly changing subjects. Not quite housing classes in the way that people like John Rex and Ray Pahl used to write about, but changing ways of thinking about evolving social networks. I want to just run through a few examples of what I mean in a contemporary context. But actually, if you look at estimates, actually estimates carried out in this institution, and this is, echoes something Phil was talking about, estimates in 2009 uh, placed the, the number of irregular migrants in London at somewhere between about 185 and 430,000 people. And I think, in a sense, there's plenty of research working in, in this area which suggests that the worlds of those forms of migration, irregularity, much more complex than people think. The paths to irregularity are more plural than are normally recognised. But they generate a different kind of urbanism. The cartography of the city is different. Walking routes, common. Boris Bikes popular and one, as one ethnographic study of Latin American migrant labour argued the knowledge of London bus routes remarkable precisely because the city is permeable more cheaply from the top of the bus than in the PFI burdened subterranean networks that make some London transport so expensive. In policy terms the denial of these, the realities in policy circles can be remarkable. Recent research at Compass by my colleague Sarah Spencer has highlighted how nation states are in denial about the realities of recognizing what we might almost understand after China as the new floating populations of Europe. The reality gap between nation states that refuse to acknowledge the scale of undocumented migration and metropolitan governments that deal with the consequences is striking and actually quite different, I think, from North America, notwithstanding recent tragic events in Lampedusa. Street level destitution and indigence, self reporting at accident and emergency, children that need schooling, disputes on the street, they all penetrate the silence, confront City Hall on the ground when central government can remain in denial. For these banal reasons, as much for any grand notion of social liberalism, at the level of the city, particularly in London, the argument about undocumented or illegal migration is very different from the traction, very different from uh, at the level of the nation state or the Daily Mail. The traction of debates on amnesties for irregularity, pathways to citizenship, regularising and regulating labour markets play out very differently in the capital from the rest of the country as the most recent mayoral debates clearly demonstrated with both Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson making supportive noises about regularising the legal status of people who have lived in the city many years. And I think even in contrast in North America, the political distance between City Hall and Washington, Bloomberg and the White House may in a way confuse party predisposition, but there's much, a much more open debate, I think, about both the, the, the possibilities and the realities of, of, of amnesty. A second example I want to give is actually draws on the work at Queen, Queen Mary that Cathy McIlwain carried out with Latin Americans in London, wherein the, the, the project that uh, she talked about are, long, are no longer invisible She basically demonstrates how the emergence of new forms of identification from a population for many years invisible creates a status of Latin American Londoners that itself is up for grabs but in dispute. But also that there are particular historical trajectories that we know there is a very specific church in East London through which Father Fred actually hosted people on the floor. It became a site of settlement. From that site of settlement grew a pattern of increasing numbers of of Brazilians in London. Brazilians in London frequently with Italian, French or Spanish passports that did not necessarily uh, reflect immediate patrilinearity, but reflected 1920s processes of migration to Latin America from depression era Europe and return to Europe on, on new passports. New flows of people from the European South to the European North that have followed on from the age of austerity, all creating a kind of flux that is about simultaneously the flux of the city and the flux of identification. And it's also a, a struggle at the moment that is articulated in a language to make visible that flux. And that structure that is initially might be for a, a politics of visibility and a politics of recognition. But we know that it builds on associational forms that combine buildings, spaces between the buildings, the back ends of shops where political debates start, the networks that emerge through retail complexes or spaces that are not really thought of in conventional sociology but, if you like, are the cramped spaces of the contemporary, the contemporary city. The third example I want to, I want to give of four I've called the New Dark London. The weak pound and the open market makes London's residential property market particularly attractive. Some people might have seen a survey from Knight Frank that was published over the summer uh, that actually claimed that 75% of new homes in inner London were bought off plan by people described as foreign investors. Now, in a sense, the, um, we might ask are these folk migrants? Well, maybe. It depends on the definition. And if you look at London in terms of the 2011 census data, although Newham is a borough in London which has the greatest number of non-UK passport holders in in London, the borough with the highest proportion of non-UK passport holders that are residents in London, non-UK passport holders is actually Kensington and Chelsea. So I guess a lot depends on who you define as a migrant, something my colleague Bridget Anderson has written about extensively. How we think about the city as characterized by a certain different kind of permeability, exit and entry to this particular part of London being very differently structured from the invisible London we talked about a second ago. Real estate researchers have discovered the phenomenon that I actually saw described as the new dark London. Now we know for Victorian explorers what dark London means, it invokes a certain kind of abyss, a certain kind of social uh, unknown, but the new dark London is the London where the lights go out at night, where in fact the lights aren't even on during the daytime because half the time people live there but some of the time they don't. The new dark London for the, the real estate dealers is frequently parts of Knightsbridge where the knock-on effects in the shops and the local taxi drivers and so on becomes considerable in the economy because nobody is there. The th- The final example I just want to to touch on is is around issues of legal citizenship. And again, if I had more time, I I, I think I've just got two or three minutes to to just kind of run through to the end. I think it's it's possible to argue, and what I argue in a slightly longer version, is that the combination of residential, residential status, migrant history, and the path dependency of those migrant histories creates a different kind of changing London around centrality. Most straightforwardly, we know that welfare changes impact very differently on those people with larger families. There is effectively a flipping of London, where through welfare changes, centrality is more uh, more valorised, precisely because your welfare benefits are limited by market-based rentals. So if you rent a property uh, and you are on benefits, your chances of staying in inner London diminish. In Tower Hamlets, the housing associations have calculated numbers of people who will be forced out of London as a result of the welfare benefits, and they're striking. And for those people, I guess, including myself, who have contacts and friends who are being offered uh, rehousing in places several hundred miles away from London sometimes, this is actually quite striking. I want to to wrap up by by making two, two points. I want to try and suggest something about what this means about subject making. in cities and then something about uh, trade-offs. What I want to try to suggest very very quickly really is that if we think of a city of emergence, a city that is um, always reproducing itself, but reproducing itself differently, we have to start thinking about the subjects we study in a slightly different form. In a most prosaic way, what this means is making a connection between the study of race and ethnicity in the British context and the study of migration, a a denial of a connection, which I think on both sides, both in the literatures around race and ethnicity at times, but also in the migration studies uh, literature certainly, is one in which you almost think these things are not connected. Now, there, there are problems and issues around this, but the point I want to make is that the subject-making of migration, ethnicity, and race have transcended an old debate about assimilation and integration, but have, in some ways, actually made us think again about the, how we make visible those people that we are uh, addressing. In terms of trade-offs, I want to try and suggest that there, we have to recognize, in that, sp- that spirit of ambivalence, that there are... Different kinds of goods that might be incommensurable. The notion of neighborhood solidarity and permeability actually might actually be incompatible. Why, New York and London, I think what compares them well is a similarity. Anonymity is precious, invisibility <laughs> is the friend of the irregular migrant. The city is the friend of the, the irregular migrant precisely because of the invisibility and anonymity that is, that is, is possible. So some of the rhetorics around neighbourhood solidarities and and, uh, notions of how the city might work as an integration machine might have a trade-off between them. We might rethink how we value indifference as a concept. We might need to think about some of the ways in which we reshape our cities, understanding that the informalities and the creativities of the city sit in a tension that is sometimes productive with forms of land zoning more controversially we might think that there might be a a trade-off between regimes of migrant rights and the sorts of of, um, advancement in labor markets that we see in certain uh, I think in this case there's a greater similarity between say New York and London than there would be between Hamburg Hamburg and London labor markets that are deregulated are problematic in all sorts of ways but they they work in terms of the employment and frequently the exploitation of migrant labour. And also in terms of how we think about the rationing of scarce scarce public goods, there are measures of the public goods, and anybody who followed the debate about the rationing of social housing in East London that has taken place over seven or eight years, those that are deemed eligible, the worthy poor, might be deemed eligible in terms of a context of the metaphor of the queue, those people who have waited longest or those people who need most. These things are not necessarily readily commensurable one with another, but they have a profound impact on the way in which the city is reshaped. So to close, in understanding how migration and the city recursively recombine, by understanding the city of becoming, in its economic, social, and political context, we may begin to understand the really multi-dimensional dynamics of the city better. The real real presence of several times, several temporalities, and several spatialities in the here and now The past infests and inhabits the present, as does the future. In general, we may need to think slightly more about how context structures the inevitable trade-offs and for an urbanism that is slightly more a posteriori and slightly less a priori. Last month, Marshall Berman passed away. The poetic urbanist of modernity, he strived to displace the certainties and pieties of hubristic politics with a profound humanism that saw contradiction and ambivalence in the soul of the city. In his own late reflections on all that is solid melts into air, Marshall suggested that Karl Marx's melting metaphor of a seductively mutable capitalism had actually inspired William Butler Yeats's formulation of tumult. Yeats's formulation was, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And in that poem, Yeats goes on a few lines later to suggest, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. In the mutable metropolis of the present day, in New York as much as London, I think it is perhaps time for slightly less conviction and slightly more inspection and introspection. Thinking about the macro and the micro, up close and then at a distance, trying to combine an ethnographic engagement with a critical distance. In moments of perspicuous contrast, as one scholar once suggested, a notion of methodological invention and ethical reflexivity, informing our collective labours. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Mike. We'll move now on to the three discussants who will speak for a few minutes in response to the papers. And we're going to begin with Rob Berkeley, who's director of the Runnymede Trust, Britain's leading race equality think tank.
3: Thanks Mike um, and, and thanks for your, uh, for your both your presentations which are really thoughtful and, uh, and have been really challenging now to, uh, to try and do five minutes of, uh, of response to. But um, I've got five points and I'll try and make them quickly. Um, firstly, a bit of a thought exercise. If we were all to wake up tomorrow morning and we were all black, um, what would that mean? Apart from me running out to buy shares in dark and lovely and fashion fair, <laughs> um, it would really put into relief that, that our debate is, is not about culture um, and a debate is, not, is, is much more about power. Um, so when David Goodhart, who thank you, hasn't been mentioned too much tonight, uh, talks about, asks the question about whether we're too diverse, um, actually the question he really ought to be asking is who rules? Uh, and we come back to a really fundamental question about, uh, about power And that may well be why uh, the kind of everyday multiculturalism that we experience, those those kind of uh, interactions in the shop or in in a restaurant, um, don't challenge that power. So they they are pretty much banal. Um, Interestingly, uh, government ministers talk about not that everyday multiculturalism. They talk about this mythical state multiculturalism. uh, And it it never existed, by the way, but but it's an interesting... Uh, myth to spin. Um, But that really does address power. Who rules? Who who is in charge in these situations? Um, And it strikes me that there's a kind of echo here of of, uh, of 45 years ago when when Enoch Powell uh, was speaking that the black man will soon have the whip hand. Um, That's not a complaint really about about the whip. but who holds it uh, and, and, I th- and I think we have to, to, to find ways of, of ensuring that the discussion about migration the discussion about uh, about race really does start to talk about uh, power much more readily and much more uh, much more openly um, so when Philip was was talking about uh, the challenge uh, to racial justice uh, and, and how uh, and how we talk about uh, these issues of racial justice um, it's our analysis, really, that, that, it, that discussions about race really have uh, fallen off, off the agenda. Um, and this is typified, I, I think, by the fact that we've got a Minister for Integration, uh, but we don't have a Minister for Race Equality. Uh, and, I, and I think that that uh, sends a signal about what, uh, what our, our current government thinks uh, is important. Um, and I. And I In my more charitable moments, I often think uh, this is just a kind of uh, benign moment. This is the the, the time uh, in which policymakers, fickle as they are, um, are just a bit bored of of tackling the issues around racial justice. We've been at it for for, for 50 years, let's let's move on and think about something else and come back to it later. Um, But I don't get that many charitable moments like that. Um, (laughs) So we end up without a strategy to address. Uh, racial inequalities. Um, we end up with no discussion of racial justice across across government. Um, and coupled with that, we get a splintering of uh, NGO and, and other political movements. So we have a, uh, a, a small and dwindling movement for racial justice, um, an anti-fascist movement um, and a movement for migrant rights. And increasingly, I'm finding that, that we don't speak to each other uh, and we don't find those spaces uh, for common cause. Um, so I, I recognize as well what Philip was saying about the worry about the second generation. Um, very very much uh, looking at uh, West African, um, migrants with, with the West African heritage and the comparisons that are made between them and the Black Caribbean group uh, and the fear that uh, the, the West African migrant will, uh, will become, uh, the, the Black Caribbean group, the problem uh, group in our society, or one of the problem groups uh, in our society. Um, and uh, luckily, you probably haven't heard of uh, David Starkey, but when he uh, when he said after the riots uh, that um, I don't want to repeat what he said, but, it, um, but when he made that illusion uh, that uh, that white young people were becoming black, mm-hmm. that whole story there was about power. Uh, rather than, I think, uh, than I think, culture. Um, so, how does this turn out into into policy uh, now? Um, so, so, this week we've had uh, Jack Wilshere, um, who's just a football player, uh, um, a smoking football player. Um, but Jack Wilshere, uh, channeling Gordon Brown, um, British jobs for British workers. Uh, with really the suggestion that there is no way to become British and similarly you know English uh, English players only only English players should play for England and you can never become English Uh, that to me is a um, it highlights I think his his concerns and his worries about uh, opening up to competition opening up to that notion uh, that we could be better if we were to to think about migration in a more progressive manner Uh, but also wanting to hunker down and close uh, close those options uh, for people to to become citizens. And I think the the notion of uh, having these large numbers of undocumented uh, migrants, uh, which is likely to increase given the immigration bill, which we've uh, we've seen uh, uh, laid before Parliament today, um, uh, 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 kind of compounds that problem and and builds on that. Um, I think I just want to, I suppose, end on, on a on a point about uh, linking or or reconnecting um, racial justice and migrant rights, as as Michael uh, mentioned. Um, So in in 2005, uh, uh, in in that election campaign, uh, Linton Crosby who's in charge of uh, the the next election campaign for the Conservatives, said it's it's not racist to talk about immigration. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Um, Similarly, uh, UKIP, Uh, are very keen to to emphasize that they uh, are similarly uh, not a racist party. Uh, In fact, they have an Asian candidate. Some of their best friends happen (laughs) to be black. Um, And uh, and EDL, similarly, uh, are not racist. They're just anti-extremists, we we discover uh, today. So um, the, the, the relationship between migrant rights and racism does does seem to be there and evident but it doesn't seem like we've got the tools to begin to to reconnect and and build build collective movements that might champion the the progressive potentialities of migration um, but also challenge some of the inequalities that are extant in our society.
0: Thank you, Rob. We we'll move on to Tim Finch, who's communications director of the Institute of Public Policy Research.
4: Uh, I'm worried about my contribution being rather coarse after such uh, thoughtful contributions. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to say, I. I risk of starting a fight on the stage, I, I think you've been dead unfair on Jack Wilshire. I don't, I don't think that that interpretation I think is, is over the top, frankly. I also uh, think, I, I will say very, very clearly, I, I, I say it's not racist to have a discussion about immigration. I don't think it's racist to have a discussion about immigration control, management and even restriction. I, and I think I think progressives need to be allowed to say that. And I I think there's actually quite a lot of good things in David Goodhart's book. So there we are, I've really set myself up. But I'm gonna say three things at the beginning. Uh, We've had a lot of immigration into this country in recent years, that's a fact. I think Phil's point was right and it's right in the UK context as well. In some ways, what's remarkable about that is how little trauma and upheaval that's really caused. I mean, there's there's a sort of psychological trauma and, and people get hat up about it. But what it's, what's it really cause, you know, the, the society goes on quite well. And then um, there's, a, there's a third fact, which is the public is really against these high levels of immigration. And the, the politicians simply have to respond to that. It's, it is no good to just say, you know, they should lead public opinion away from that. They have to respond to that to some extent. Now IPPR works in that space and where a lot of the work we've been doing recently is about trying to find what would be a progressive message on migration that would work in that space. I just want to try something out on you very quickly. If I I read this out, immigration brings benefits to the UK, but also problems. On balance, the benefits outweigh the problems. Immigration has been good for the UK. Put your hand up if you agree with that. Quite a lot of people. Uh, What about this one? If migrants work hard, pay into the system, and uphold British values, we should welcome them to the UK. Seems slightly less. So I'll, just, I'll just say that when we polled and we have and we've deliberated workshops and we tested these messages a lot, we find that 23% of people agreed or strongly agreed with the first one. So it, there's very little public traction with that one. So the, the, so the progressive take on this largely has been to tell you that, you that you're wrong about this. Migration is good for you. You might not like it, but it's good for you. Doesn't work as a message. Uh, much better, just to stress the other one, and we'll be be trying to make sure the Labour Party and other parties we reach will use that framing, which is if you work hard, pay into the system and uphold British values, we should welcome you in the UK because you can get 64% public support for that that view. Mm -hmm. Now, I think what does that mean? Uh, I think what it it means is that there is a way of of, uh, talking about migration positively and getting people to support it. But it, it, it does take into a couple of factors. I'm going to look at just quickly at two groups. I think, one of the, when, you think of, when you think of the Poles coming into Britain, I mean, it's an astonishing, the largest movement of people in peacetime history. And that, I think, really goes to the point of how, despite all that, that's, that's worked okay. And I don't think it's t- entirely a, a racial thing, although obviously that's a component of it. Now, there's still a, bit, still a public problem with EU migration, there's a couple of dynamics to that. I think one, the problem was that the government said hardly any people were going to come and then a lot did, and that distrust about statistics has always been a problem. And then there are issues, I think, around uh, contribution and entitlement, particularly if you arrive uh, and then fairly quickly uh, are due those entitlements. So that remains an issue. But by and large, it seems to me as though people have no problem with that. Where I am going to depart a bit from others on the panel, although personally, obviously, I'm very sympathetic with, is around the issues of... Irregulars. This obviously is a problem and uh, we, we, we can't wish it away because it, uh, although if you look at the framing device of working hard, paying into the system and even upholding British values, I'm sure most of them do, there is an issue that they're just outside the rules and I think playing by the rules is another thing that's important. Now uh, when we look at something like the, the, the racist van, Uh, which I think is a sort of little mini metaphor for um, Britain's problem with this issue. You see see there um, a horrible offensive message, a completely useless gimmicky political strategy. It's interesting that the... uh, Advertising Standards Association's response to this has been uh, that their, their, their thing they don't like about it is it uses mis- misleading statistics. Another thing that bedevils uh, debate about migration in this country. Uh, but I think we sort of chalk it up, by and what large, as a liberal win, and it's probably uh, probably the reason Norman Baker's in in the Home Office and. Uh, 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 in, the, in the recent reshuffle, but one of the things that comes out of it, it seems to me, is that we can't then just r- say there isn't uh, there isn't some hard thinking to be done about what we do about irregulars. And I, I, I had the, in some sense, misfortune to uh, do a big. Um, Research project on that, and it came up with the title "No Easy Options," which tells you how far we got on that. But in some ways, I would defend it in just saying that there's going, to be, there's going to have to be lots of multifarious and difficult and bits and piecesy types of ways of dealing with this issue. And just a grand sweeping, what we need to do is regularise. And the political climate in which we are is very difficult. And if we're going to regularise, I suggest we do it relatively quietly. And Boris and, and Ken can talk about it in a debate and garner votes in a place like London. It's fine because they know they're never going to have to implement it. I'm just going to end by saying, you were suggesting that I might come up with policy recommendations. Um, I think in a way we, we've got to had too much policy on migration. We've certainly got enough now. I think what the public really wants on this and this plays into this agenda is for the system that we currently have to bed down. There might be changes that are a bit more liberal or a bit more restrictionist, but they want to see it settle and to work better. How I think we pursue the conversation in this and get it to a better place is by conversation, just lots of conversations, uh, endless open-ended dialogue, just keep talking about it. And that's why I think it's so important to allow everybody who has a view on this into the discussion, even if we, we find some of their views uh, particularly or a little bit offensive. I'm, I'm going to end with the most brazen and naked plug, because I, 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 I can, the a big audience here, I published a novel this summer. Yeah. <laughs> the the and one of the reasons I raise it, is uh, apart from the fact that you should all buy it, because it's really good, <laughs> it is just to say I've worked on this issue as a BBC, Political journalist who found it very difficult. I worked. Uh for the Refugee Council on communication, so from the com- campaign side, I worked on it from a policy researcher, so I found it very hard, I worked it on, on it from a communications point of view. In all of those ways I found it very difficult and one of the reasons I think is in many of those things you're looking for something simple, you're looking to how you can solve it, how you can boil it down to its essentials, if only we could find a way in which we could advance an agenda on this, that and the other. Uh, the more and more I think about it, although I'm still in this world, I don't really think that's going to work. I think what we want to do is to just try and find ways to accept the sort of messiness and intractability of it and keep the conversation going. And, and, and I think that relates to what the others were saying. That in some ways, that particularly cities are very, very good spaces for that. And you can do that in all sorts of ways. And, and I'd include a very good one is uh, through the arts, through plays, literature, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a way in which you can... Uh, get inside the head of someone else, understand a bit how they're feeling, uh, join up people in in different ways and and, and understand them a bit better. And I think probably that if we can do that a bit more, um, that will represent some actual progress in this area.
0: Thank you, Tim. Um, I I, I feel we won't have enough time to... Join the debate fully, but um, let me now introduce Sharon Zukin, who needs little introduction. One of the world's most famous so- urban sociologists.
5: Thank you. I'm beginning to feel a little bit like a cat who wandered into a confrontation between a pit bull and a terrier, but I'll just make a a, a few remarks. First, I have to say that, frankly, I'm really happy to be in a conversation of more than three people these days, which is not focusing on the shutdown of the government. (laughs) Thanks thanks very much. Second, to to riff on the the point that uh, my colleague and friend Phil Kazinitz made, there are uh, enormous and uh, even unbridgeable differences between the UK and the US on the sorts of issues we have been discussing this evening. For example, if the cost of a subway ticket in New York equaled the cost of a tube ticket, in London there would be riots in the streets. And I haven't seen any riots about that issue uh, since I arrived. Uh, The next point, play by the rules, Tim mentioned. And I think that is just um, the opposite point on a spectrum that ends in a conversation about the crisis of civilization. And what are the interesting variables that enter into that, uh, uh, that discussion? Uh, race, to be sure, as uh, the other speakers have emphasized, and also religion, which has not reared its head in this evening's discussion. And I wonder what I can say in the, in the guise of a, of a social theory about race and religion in the, in, in the current issues that royal our two societies. Well, maybe I'll, I'll suggest that less is more. Uh, societies that are uh, more religious, uh, for example, the United States in in some superficial ways, uh, seem to have less of a problem with uh, acknowledging the religiosity of others. And societies in which race has seemed to be less of a problem, like the UK, in fact have more difficulty in trying to come to grips with an honest recognition of racial issues and uh, a discussion of of, uh, of of racial justice uh... the next point uh... there's no way to become english or everybody can become american uh... i think you know we our societies are really embroiled in a discussion of whether citizenship is a legal category or a normative category what does it take to be a citizen? <coughs> what rights inhere in being a citizen, and can can one aspire to become a citizen? How can one aspire to become a citizen? Uh, just in the past week, the Governor of California vetoed a law that was passed by the uh, state legislature of California that would have required the extension of um, Uh, jury serving rights to non-citizens and uh, the the state of California has in general been pretty good in its positions on immigrant rights or uh, non-citizens rights and yet uh, the governor and, and I'm not making a judgment about this I'm just putting this out for discussion the governor of California Uh, said that uh, the right to serve on a jury is one of those inalienable rights of citizenship that cannot ever be extended to non-citizens so what does it mean to uh, to aspire to citizenship as a uh, a normative category and and as a legal category speaking of uh, the state of california may i point out that nobody has spoken about the structure of the state as a determining factor in uh, in in citizens rights Uh, do we have a central state do we live in a federal state as in the US or do we live in a city-state and what does the structure of the state imply for the granting of citizenship rights Um, I I think In in the United States, where entitlement to welfare rights, to unemployment insurance, to medical insurance, as has been very much on the front political burner these days, and to voting rights, depends on the federal system. Uh, I'm wondering whether that diffuses the discussion of citizenship or does it simply concentrate it at other points. Then the urban front. Um, those of you who participated in the smaller workshop during the day today know that uh, Phil and I have been active in a research project uh, on local shopping streets and one of the uh, interesting findings uh, in comparing cities in Europe and the United States um, by looking at local shopping streets is that diversity has a very different meaning in Europe from in the United States in Germany the Netherlands and France diversity is uh, crudely speaking obtained by parachuting members of the middle class into racially and ethnically uh, uh, predominantly non-white streets but in the United States we take diversity to be operationalized by introducing non-whites into a white context, so I'm you know, thinking about what diversity means in our, our different societies. And to conclude very very quickly, perhaps diversity has become a trope for citizenship, while homogeneity becomes a base of a sense of moral ownership, if not legal ownership. Thanks.
0: Okay, I'll ask Philip and Michael to respond in a minute, but we only have 10 minutes, so I think we'll take a few questions from the floor, and then we'll have a wrap-up from Philip and Michael. So, Does anyone want to ask a question?
5: Hi, thank you all so much for your really interesting talk. My name's Olivia Mena. I'm a sociology student here um, in the the department, and... um, I'm actually really interested in your work. I look at it not from an urban perspective, but I work on borderland studies and looking at border barriers around the world. So it's a bit different kind of regional context maybe. But one of the things I was interested interested in, and maybe you could discuss a little bit, Professor Keith alluded to it, but kind of these floating populations and kind of talking about the role of mobility. And I know like in the case of California and the driver's license and getting a driver's license as a form of ID in the US is a really big issue with immigration and kind of that idea that cities offer this anonymity, this space where you can be safe. And I was wondering if maybe that was a topic that could maybe be further addressed by the panel, thank you.
0: Any more questions? One over there.
3: Hi, um, Malcolm James, City University. I was just wondering if the um, panel could
4: elaborate a bit on the importance of a utopia for imagining the city to come. we heard kind of three versions of that and one version of governing by focus groups. So
0: mm-hmm.
4: those of you who spoke about a utopia, I was just wondering if you could kind of elaborate on that.
0: And one... Uh, that, that's there.
2: I'd like to ask about what I think is the global elephant in the room. Um, what effect do you think climate change will have on global migration over the next few decades?
0: One more question. Just back Um, I was just wondering whether actually um, you could comment slightly on how the differences are between creating a kind of migrant subject within a city and then also politics of dispersal that are really focusing on how you create a migrant as someone who is pushed out of a city forcibly. Thank you, I think it's enough. Perhaps we can now have five minutes response by Philip and then Michael.
1: Uh, Taking the last first, I think that um, One of the uh, trends that's certainly very obvious in American cities, particularly New York, and I think is also probably true in London, has been kind of a reversal of uh, the historic um, uh, concentration of minorities and uh, immigrants towards the center of the city and into the outskirts. Where that's particularly important in the US is that it um, often puts people into suburban communities that frankly have less government, where government doesn't do very much. And this has to do with the American governmental structure, where uh, the national government isn't very involved in actual local services. One of the great issues underneath uh, a lot of American migration policies: is the fact that immigration is one of those issues where, um, to a considerable extent, the costs are born locally in things like school systems and medical uh, uh, access to medicine and um, all sorts of ways in which you know, everyday governance often falls on the hands of local authorities who are really ill-prepared for it. Nevertheless, the big decisions like who's going to be admitted to the country and who not are done federally. And suburban communities are often very ill-equipped to deal with these situations because precisely the, the, the history of accommodation and the building up of institutional and political and cultural accommodations to immigrants uh, has happened in the city. So you've got a kind of a suburban free riding that goes on. And I think that that's really been an issue um, and, and will be more of one as more people are moving out into new destinations, both rural areas, but also I think particularly uh, uh, outer city areas. Um, and certainly the economy is pushing in that direction. As far as climate change goes, I have absolutely no idea. Um, other than to say that there's a lot of people coming from low lying places who are going to be moving, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, New York, of course, has its own climate change issues, as we discovered after a recent hurricane. Um, and so I suspect that this is going to be something that we will we'll be dealing with and that our politics is uniquely incapable of dealing with. Um, But then again, our politicians, as Sharon alluded to about the shutdown, seem to be particularly incapable of dealing with a great many things at the moment. And there I would uh, stress, again, the dilemma of the fact that our cities, which tend to be fairly pro-immigration and tend to have a fairly progressive politics on this, are subject to the control of a relatively small minority that, because of the way American government is structured, happen to have a disproportionate amount of um, uh, power in the House of Representatives, at the moment they're shutting the government down, which is the reason we don't have an immigration reform bill, uh, but may very well be able to stop an immigration reform bill um, even when they, uh, if the government ever does go back into business. And this is a real fundamental problem for American democracy, um, largely because, well, in the case of the immigration reform bill, we see really fairly solid majorities favoring it. We see a problem that is just festering because we've created this very large number of people. We talk about, you know, is it progressive to talk about unauthorized migrants? But the fact is in the US case at least, and I'll just speak for the US case, the unauthorized migrants got created by policy um, decisions. Uh, We had a period in which it was relatively not easy but possible to become (coughs) authorized. People who are employed in the United States find it literally impossible. If you're an unskilled Mexican without a close relative in the United States, the wait to legally become a uh, migrant, to be entitled to legal uh, settlement in the US, is about 40 years. I mean, it has literally become impossible. Um, And that's a policy problem. I mean, we we screwed that up deliberately. I mean, uh, and um, the fact that we're unable to address this leaves me extremely discouraged. I'll, I'll try and be brief,
2: so apologies if it doesn't do justice to the questions. but I guess in, in this, the social sciences traditions there are those who will argue for a, a position that starts from the normative. There are those who will argue for a, a position that tries to pretend that social science can be entirely analytical, and I suppose there are those, including uh, myself, among them would say that these things inevitably bleed one into another, but it's our duty to make visible those occasions when the normative is being articulated and when the analytical is. And the reason I say that is because it ties into some of the comments all, all around. The first being that this does not necessarily make things comfortable, right? So, so we know that if you open up to the A8 migrants and we have controlled <coughs> experiments of this and you have a Scandinavian uh, Scandinavian welfare state, Swedish, uh, labour markets with strong unionization and standard wage bargaining. Um, those labour markets are impermeable and regardless of anything else, Sweden opens up, very few people move. You uh, have uh, deregulated, liberalised labour markets, uh, and, uh, and it, well, uh, however one might characterise the British welfare state, moving halfway across the Atlantic at the moment, I guess. Uh, then we know that permeability both facilitates migration but it facilitates migration at a certain cost. And so there are, is an implicit normative debate about how you then think about welfare states in the context. These things are, are uncomfortable uh, in ways which I think challenge the simple uh, division of, with due respect to Tim, of the progressives and, and others at times. And so I too wouldn't say it's actually, uh, wouldn't, I don't think anyone sitting here would, just, it would be uh, racist to talk about the debate about migration, but it does create I think at, at times a, a need to think purely analytically, at least as a thought experiment and in the context of the floating populations of Europe or the equivalents in other parts of the, of the world. I think there's a straightforward issue, which I don't actually, I don't think is about uh, regularization as being a good. It's just about the straightforward realities that the part of what I was trying to suggest was that part of the realities on the ground, I think, and London exemplifies this is that whatever one thinks about the moral configuration of the world, the numbers have increased, are increasing, a large number of people are born mm. unaware of the fact that they are irregular and only find out later in their life they are irregular. Uh, and so that creates a, a, a demos, a, a subject position and that, that presents itself at city hall in hospitals in various contexts and is made visible through the city in some ways and is made invisible in. In other ways, and I suppose what I was trying to argue is that we then need to think through the dynamics of that, regardless of any ethical um, commitments. And we might comment if we had more time on the ethical commitments, but that leads into, I guess, the point about how you then think about those 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 mobilities. And if I can join up with the climate change point and the utopian very quickly, and the lack of time that, that we have, that I I think the reality is the the the, the climate change migrations. I think will initially articulate as flows to cities. Mm -hmm. And I think at the same time we shouldn't underestimate the potential to retrofit cities to Mm -hmm. develop resilience. And I mean I don't want to sound too techno-determinist, but if you go to Hamburg and see the developments around the docks of Hamburg where people are building the new city for flooding, right? So I mean you, you build in the propensity to accept flooding as part of the sea level changes that are yet to, yet to come. Now that is not to be too rosy and certainly isn't being too utopian. I think the utopian is precisely about what sort of political horizon that there, there might be and the reason for the mention of Faust I guess is that we all, we all in those politics work out at which point and at which stage one sells one's soul perhaps and I guess it's whether the price is right in, in, that, in, that, in that process. Okay, thank you very much. We could
0: obviously carry on talking about a lot longer, but we do have to finish now. So can we finish by thanking everyone?